0: your delight and to our great joy we pray for these things and ask that uh, that your gospel would be center lord as we meditate on what it means to have a missionary heart and soul pray in jesus name amen amen so we're talking about the contours of a missionary heart and really the three major um, divisions i think is one paul's heart is displayed in a reverent gospel service he has a very reverent gospel service. Who explain that? Secondly, um, his heart is displayed in his Christ exalting gospel work. He does gospel work, but it's all about Jesus Christ. And finally, he has a pioneering gospel ambition, and we'll talk about that. But he desires to go where no man has gone before. It's old Star Trek reference. Sorry, but nevertheless, reverent. Gospel service, verses 14 through 16. We begin with this idea of his gospel service, right? His ministry to the Gentiles. And and right off the bat, it begins in verse 14 with brotherly affirmation. Brotherly affirmation. Look at verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. He begins with I myself... That I'm satisfied about you. And just the fact that he's focusing on his thoughts concerning these brothers begins to shift in this letter towards his final and personal remarks. That, that's right off the bat. But, but this is what is interesting. Because I don't know if we, I've said this before, but we've probably mentioned it at some point. But in the Greek, like some languages, right? English is not necessarily like this. But our verb structure tells you who the subject is. Our, our English does do that when we use commands. Like if I say, "Hey, go hit the ball." Right? Then what is implied is you, the subject, go hit the ball. I don't have to say, "You go hit the ball." In fact, if I say, "You go hit the ball," right? Then I'm putting some extra emphasis on you in particular or on you as a team in particular. Do you realize that? And so that's what's happening in the Greek here. The term, I am satisfied, it is baked into the very construction of the verb for satisfied that it is Paul speaking. So that we would easily translate it, if he didn't add the other pronouns, just, I'm satisfied about you. And that would make perfect sense, and that would carry the meaning forward. His emphasis placed on himself by saying, I myself am satisfied, by adding a couple of pronouns there, tells us that it's about him. And, And I think it's about him as it relates to these particular brothers. He's about to say, right, that on some points in the next verse that he has written some things very boldly by way of reminder. In other words, I think what Paul is addressing is that these Roman Christians on reading all the things that Paul has written to them might have some thought that Paul thinks we are deficient in faith. Paul Paul thinks we're not quite where we need to be. He's telling us some basic stuff, and he's telling us a little bit more deeply some of these basic things, but I wonder if the great apostle thinks that we are kind of wandering or not doing too well. There may be doubts about um, how the apostle thinks about them, but in actuality, Paul thinks much about them. In the opening verses, in verse 8, he ta- tells them that their faith is known throughout the world. He appreciates them. In fact, besides the Thessalonian Christians, no other letter that Paul has written is without a very specific rebuke. In other words, he thinks much about the Roman Christians. This is him just kind of doubling down and letting them know with great brotherly affirmation that he is glad and satisfied about them. The term for satisfied is a word that means um, something along the lines of convinced. And the idea is that Paul has come to a convinced or settled opinion about them. He is saying, I'm just not, you know, just, just glad about you. I am satisfied. I'm certain. I am convinced. And I myself, so that you understand that I'm not coming at you with, with difficulties as if you're doing something wrong. I'm coming to you glad with conviction for you, my brothers in Christ. Because I will affirm that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. These are all the, the, the three elements of fullness that Paul wants to address with him, that they're one, full of goodness. This is spiritual goodness. And in fact, the word that is used for goodness here is a word that you don't find in classical Greek, but is only found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is the kind of good that is spiritually good. Spiritually good, not just kind of ethereal, kind of, you know, woo, kind of good. But, actually Christian good. Or if it was in the Old Testament translation, of the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, it would be the kind of goodness, right, that is like unto God. This is like God's goodness. It, it, he is defining for us that there is a goodness that characterizes the people of God, and he's saying, you're full of that. You're doing great. There, there is stuff about you that makes it clear that you are God's. I liken it to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, when, remember Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Most of us know those two verses. And the next one, right after that, is we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are His workmanship, his, his handiwork, His craftsmanship, and we have been recreated in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works. And too often, our concept of goodness or even good works is, is just kind of narrowed down and, and overly simplified to mean that I'm trying to, to remove sinfulness. That, that holiness, doing good, Finding God's goodness and seeking good works is merely not doing bad and every once in a while doing something good for somebody who doesn't deserve it. The idea of good works in Ephesians, the idea of goodness here is that we are becoming more and more exactly what God has desired us to be. Let me give you a quick rundown in the book of Ephesians because you might ask, well, what does good works mean? And you might think, well, you know, you should give some money away or you should... You know, you should say something nice to somebody even though they don't deserve it or something. It can include those things. But this is what Ephesians says about some of these good works. It says in Ephesians 3.19 that you should walk in the knowledge of the love of Christ. In chapter 4, the first part, it says that we should walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, in love, promoting the unity of the body of Christ. Later on in chapter 4, it says that we are to be ministers... Right? To minister to the body according to, the, to your giftedness. To build up the body to the point of its maturity. We're to put off the old self and put on the new self in holiness. We're supposed to speak truth. We're supposed to work with our hands so that we might give stuff away. We're supposed to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as, Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven us. We're to be imitators of God in chapter 5, walking in love, redeeming the time, being filled with the Spirit, worshiping in, in each other's presence submitting to one another when appropriate wives submitting to husbands husbands loving their wives as christ loved the church children obeying their parents bond servants and masters likewise pleasing god in all of their interactions does that sound like a laundry list of just stuff you got to do or don't do that's the whole being and paul is saying this is what you are to me He's saying, in case you feel like I am thinking of you negatively, he's saying, I am fully satisfied about you because you are fully enjoying the goodness of God and character and life. These guys are fulfilling these things. So there is a brotherly affirmation. All right. And that brotherly affirmation is about the fullness of the goodness of Christ's work in their lives. Secondly, right, the second phrase there, not only that you are yourselves full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another, they're also filled with all knowledge and they're able to instruct one another. Filled with all knowledge doesn't suggest that they are just, just, you know, super knowledgeable as if they have received an entire data dump of theological information, not at all. It means that they understand they understand the gospel and what that means. They understand the richness of knowing, see, knowledge of knowing the person of Jesus Christ and God the Father who is the orchestrator of our salvation. They understand these rich dimensional truth, transformational truths, and by remembering and understanding these things, they are pushing that forward. I love it because um, like, uh, uh, like one commentator, Leon Morris, puts it, Paul's not referring to knowledge in general, but that general comprehension of Christian teaching, which is allied with a deep concern to do what is good. That is the way, right, that is the way the problem of the weak and the strong will be solved and many other problems as well. That's a good statement, right? Like all the things that he's discussed, some of the struggles between weak and strong Christians, etc., that stuff will be overcome by their comprehension of who Christ is, what he's done for us, and a deepening of the application of the word of God concerning their lives. And I like this last part that Leon Morris adds. It is perhaps significant. I think he's Australian, right? Because if he's American English, it would just say, it's significant. But it is perhaps significant that when he writes to the Corinthians, Paul compliments his readers on their knowledge, but does not mention goodness. Do you catch what I'm saying here? I love, um, um, I love that particular commentator, his... his his, uh, his keen eye for that. In other words, when he writes to the Corinthians, he does mention how they're full of knowledge, they're excellent in their understanding of theological things. Philosophically and intellectually, they are superior to most. They are excellent thinkers, but nowhere in the letters does Paul say you are full of goodness, as he does to the Romans. And that is significant, because Paul is suggesting they're not just full of knowledge, but they are applying that in goodness And the third element of this is they're able to instruct one another. They're able to instruct one another. Look, it's one thing to know something. Something important, right? It's another thing to know something important to the point of it becoming practice. It becomes practice for us to, to do something about that. And it is a third step. And potentially, the greatest step of the depth of our maturity, when we know something, we do something about it, and then we train others in the same path. Right? You could take something as simple as, you know, having a theory of how to grow corn. To actually taking that theory and growing corn. And then taking other farmers who don't know how to grow corn and helping them learn how to grow corn. Right? Step one, two, three. And three, it's, it's, it's an it's a easy kind of um, progression in terms of discipleship and anything that we, we want to do, and it makes sense. And I think Paul's applying this to spiritual things. Let's take one spiritual thing and think of it this way. How about sharing the gospel? It's one thing to know what we kind of should say, maybe not perfectly, but to kind of know what the gospel is and think, okay, I should say something about Jesus Christ. I should say something about God. To say something about us as sinners and our need for salvation so we know it and then now we think okay i'm going to practice that i'm going to go and i'm going to share the gospel with people or try to encourage people to think about the lord and about their life in a way that that is informative and helps them concerning the gospel so you practice that and then you try to encourage others other believers to do the same you begin to enculturate that kind of gospel spreading goodness in the friends and brothers and sisters in Christ that are around you. You get it? The point of the Paul in, in his, this opening verse, in verse 14, is he's trying to say, Brothers, I am not dissatisfied. I, I am not in any way disappointed with you. You're full of goodness. God's goodness. Right? You're full of knowledge, and you're able to instruct others as well. You are doing well, so I want to begin with brotherly affirmation. May my ministry to you begin with this affirmation of what Christ has done in and through you. These, these Christians weren't even, if you remember, they were not directly influenced or ministered to by Paul. He, he still hopes to meet them one day. And so what a joyous and excellent thing for Paul to commend them for how well they have done so far. Secondly, right, the heart of uh, the reverent, gospel, service-minded heart of Paul, the missionary and apostle, comes through in his very ministerial or pastoral council. Look at verse 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. He begins by talking about how he has has written some things, some points, very boldly as a way of reminder. There's been some bold reminders that Paul has laid down in in the letter to the Roman Christians. The term for um, reminder here, I think is important. It's a phrase that, that literally can be translated as if calling back to mind again. The word tells us that Paul is saying what bold things I've written to you are not brand new or novel. Paul didn't say, hey, you have been saved by the gospel of grace. You've been saved by grace through faith alone. And they're like, what? We never heard this, right? Right. he's saying there's nothing new there's nothing novel i'm telling you things that you know i'm reminding you of the very things that you have you have already learned and have already utilized and have already incorporated into your life but i've written to you boldly nevertheless to reinforce some of these theological truths he needs to remind them of what it means to live purposely for the glory of god in christ He needs to remind them, again, of something that they know, how to best utilize their own gifts and abilities for the cause of the gospel and for the unity of the church. He needs to remind them to bring it back to their minds again that these truths can often be taken for granted, doctrinal, gospel, theological, philosophical truths that can feed our worldview and protect us from other views that do not incorporate eternity nor care about unity and love. And he's saying, I, I got to remind you of these things because you could drift from that. Why? Because we can drift from that. I mean, Paul was preaching some really significant and weighty theological things like our election, God's absolute sovereignty over all things. Salvation by faith alone, the continuing struggle of sin, even for believers. He's talking about all of these things. Unity within the body when there's a weak conscience Christian and a strong conscience Christian. How to get along. He's teaching these things that are, that are in some ways basic, foundational. But nevertheless, we, meet, we need constant reminder of so that we are growing not just in new ideas, Right, But in getting deeper into the old ideas and in incorporating those things that have been the same from the beginning of the writing of the pages of Scripture and that still are the means by which we grow and we, we, we thrive and uh, um, we come to be more and more like Jesus Christ. He says this is because of the grace given to me by God and I think simply he's saying that there is a grace gift and that grace gift that he is a minister of Jesus Christ, right? In verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So we have a brotherly affirmation, pastoral counsel, and then this priestly reconciliation. I say priestly because that's the term that he uses here. He says to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Now, those two terms, minister and priest, are very unique to this particular passage. He uses the term minister, but he doesn't use the term that we might think of that that Paul has used in this letter previously, diakonos, right? So it's where we get our English word deacon from. The term diakonos literally means house servant. That's not the term here. The term here is a term that means temple servant. So he means minister as a word picture for someone that serves in the temple of God, a priest. And to double down, he says to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. And he uses a term that actually means priestly, priestly or liturgical. Liturgical means something is ceremonial or it's ritual it's a very serious approach to kind of, you know, the, the steps of how we conduct ourselves in worship. And so when we talk about the liturgy of a, of, a, of a worship service, we mean the order of worship. How do we conduct worship in such a way that is pleasing and appropriate to God? It's an old word, one that most Christians, I think modern Christians today, aren't that familiar with, with in terms of, of liturgy. But the combination of a temple minister and a priestly liturgy, you know, a liturgy servant, those things combined suggest that Paul is using this illustration of serving in God's temple. And he's taking this very seriously. There's only one high priest, our eternal high priest, and that's Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. At the same time, the New Testament tells us that we as Christians in some way are a royal priesthood. First Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why is Paul using temple Service, all right, word pictures. And I think he's trying to capture the sacredness and solemnity, right, how serious this ministry to the Gentiles and the ministry of the gospel is. I, I don't think Paul is trying to say that every Christian should always be as solemn and serious as possible. Uh, I don't know many of you in this room that are hardly ever solemn and serious. But the point is that that Paul is saying this is a serious task. This is an important work. So deep and abiding and important and weighty to him that he would say it's like serving in the temple. Because whatever else we know about serving in the temple in the Old Testament liturgy, it was exacting. It was days of purification and cleansing and washing and abstaining from some things and certain foods, etc., before the high priest was ready to minister. It was years of training so that they would understand the Scriptures and what they are to do next and how it was that they are to sacrifice animals and what things are to be offered, in what context, and in what seasons, and what days of the calendar. It was precise about what you wear about how you approach, about what you sing, about what we do as a congregation. Do you understand that what Paul is saying is he is taking the illustration of the Old Testament, not because the Old Testament priesthood still continues today, it doesn't. But he's saying there's something so weighty about taking the gospel to the Gentiles that, man, it weighs on his soul like he is a temple priest. Conducting these services, and here's the last part of this illustration that I really appreciate. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What is the purpose in having such gravitas, having such weight and seriousness to his gospel ministry to the Gentiles? Because he's offering the Gentiles to his God. And look at that carefully because you might, you might scan over that and not, and not capture what Paul is saying there. But he says this is the purpose. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Now this, you could read this, at least in our English, as saying that the offering that the Gentiles bring might be acceptable. But that's not what Paul is saying. He is saying so that the offering, which is the Gentiles, may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? The Gentiles are the offering. Paul's saying, follow me in this illustration. I am this priest that has everything in order. I'm careful about how I conduct myself, about purification rituals, right? metaphorically speaking, Paul's not going through these things, but he's saying it's almost like I'm going through all of this preparation, so much care, very careful about how I conduct myself and and how I interact and what I teach and what I do. I am so serious about offering the gospel to the Gentiles because in the end, what the Gentiles mean to me is I am the priest that is offering them up to the Lord. That's an amazing statement. It means that his entire priesthood, the illustration that he's using here, is, is, is aimed at offering the Gentiles, these unbelieving human souls that are not Jewish in background, to offer them up to the living God to be an acceptable sacrifice, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What, what makes this uh, so remarkable um, is that the way that Paul sees it, this is how he is approaching them so carefully so intentionally um so wholeheartedly because he needs them to come to faith in Christ in a way that glorifies his god he's offering them up all right to, to be an acceptable and that term for acceptable means that it is well pleasing that god says yes to that offering so that they would be offered up to him, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That term, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, it means exactly that. It means that the Holy Spirit is causing them uh, to grow in holiness and in righteousness. But um, again, I go to Morris again, Leon Morris, who I love, right, Um, who points out that Paul's Jewish opponents would have regarded all Gentiles as being unclean. So his use of the term sanctified is very significant, all right? Um, and it is it is Paul saying that not only are you accepted not only are you brothers in Christ but even in the seriousness of my ministry to you and my desire to offer you up to the Lord as as a thank offering to say God how good are you to receive these people to yourself you have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit so let no one say that you're just Gentiles and unclean anymore you know How you think about your life and its purpose, how you conceive of your identity, right, begins to bleed into and impact how you live, begins to to answer questions of why we exist, what is our purpose, and how should we live. This is Paul exposing us to his very reverent gospel service attitude of heart. This is how he identifies himself. Let me give you another quote. R. Kent Hughes says it this way. Here we are exposed to Paul's remarkable self-conception. Though he's involved in the dusty, mundane business of traveling the ancient world on foot, suffering from exposure, threats, beatings, and rejection, in his heart of hearts he sees himself in priestly garb in the temple, lifting up the souls of men, which then ascend as a sweet-smelling fragrance to Christ. And he adds, if only we could see our service as such, our lives would be transformed. A pie baked for a neighbor becomes an offering to God. A child held and loved is a liturgy. An employee treated with dignity is a beatitude. The gospel shared is a song in heaven's courts. A Sunday school class well taught, a fragrance to God. These are beautiful thoughts. Even better, they are true the sacred view of life as the primary characteristics of the ministry heart of the Apostle Paul. That's well stated. I I wanted to steal it and reshape it and make it my own, but it was too well stated. Right? It's really good. In other words, if we begin to think in that same reverential gospel ministry big-hearted want to brotherly affirm people want to pastorally counsel them remind them to bring them back to the fundamentals and the basics of the gospel want to, to to offer up those who have not known christ to christ to connect to reconcile god and man and sinner right to be part of that ministry man that would transform anything and everything you do do you have to become a full-time pastor no Do you have to become a full-time missionary? No, you could. But you could be a full-time Christian no matter what else you're doing. And I think that's what we catch from this great apostle, right? So reverent gospel service. Secondly, Christ-exalting gospel work. Christ-exalting gospel work. Beginning of verse 17, you see um, uh, there's going to be five kind of really quick things that are kind of given to us in verses uh, 17 to 19. He begins, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So he begins by this word, I have reason to be proud. The word for being proud is a word that means boast. So I, I think a better translation for us might be, I have reason to boast of my work for God. And I think the ESV translators are trying to pull that back a little bit because the point of the verse is that he's not boasting in himself. And he's not boasting in his work. He's boasting in his work for God, yes. But, you got to catch the first phrase, in Christ Jesus, I have reason to boast of my work for God. In both things, the boasting is about God's work in Christ. Or God's work through Christ. It's not Paul exalting himself at all, not even as a minister. He's saying, man, I have gladness, reason to exalt because of Christ. And because of what he's doing through me and for the Gentiles as God's work among them. He's not bragging on his own achievements at all. He's bragging on what Christ has done and the work that is accomplished through him as the vessel, as the tool to do God's great work. So that's the boast. Secondly, is the aim. Verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except that Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. He said, I'm not gonna even go go ahead and start saying anything about anything except that Christ has accomplished these things. And what are these things? Accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. To bring the Gentiles to obedience. Paul's entire point is that the Gentiles might come to faith in this. He's used a similar phrase in Romans chapter 1 in verse 5 of how Christ is granting grace and apostleship to, to Paul to bring about, this is Romans 1.5, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So see he's using a similar phrase and that he's saying that that in the end it's it's faith in Christ that leads unto obedience to the gospel that's the aim that's the ambition so he's saying I'm not going to venture to speak of anything I just want Christ to be known so that the gentiles would fall in line and they would fall in line how right if the boast is god is working through me in Christ and the aim is that the Gentiles might come to obedience to the gospel. The method has been just word and deed. That's the last part of verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. This is the means by which Paul has brought the gospel to the Gentiles. He has spoken. All right? he, has, he, has, he has given... Um, um, encouragements, exhortations, and really um, he has instructed what the gospel is. And then by his deeds, he has acted in such a way that demonstrates the gospel is not just an idea, right? So that I could give you an idea and I could live differently, but that it's an idea that would transform your lives. And everything he has done has been tried to be consistent with the gospel of salvation that has come from Christ. I'll give you a great example in 1st Thess, chapter 2. This is a long one. If you want to turn there, you can turn there. But in 1st Thess, chapter 2, starting verse 2, it says this. But though we had already suffered um, and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. So see, all this point, Paul is just kind of laying out that we could have done this, we could have, we didn't, right? It wasn't about us. And then verse 7 of, of First Thess 2, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of, uh, for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Is he what Paul saying? He didn't just come and preach his gospel and say, hey, I'm preaching the gospel, man. Hook me up with something. I remember there's a, um, a restaurant owned by a friend, and then... Uh, um, I think it was his dad. I was, was a relative that was running it, um, Korean family. And um, we were talking about some stuff, and he knew that I was a pastor. And he said, oh, hey, um, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm thank, thank, thankful for pastors coming in and stuff. He goes, he goes, I'll be honest, though. You know, I haven't really been going to church, and uh, um, a lot of pastors come in, and they just sit down, and they tell me, hey, I'm a pastor. Give me some free food. All right? And <laughs> So I think uh, he appreciated that I didn't go, I'm a pastor, give me some free food. I said, you know, I am his pastor, give me some free food. I, I didn't. But, but this is Paul saying that, listen, did he come with a pretext to get something from you? Did he kind of have that kind of slick feel to him? That sliminess to him where he's coming and saying, hey, listen, I got great news for you. It's going to be great, you know. Um, and, oh, <clears throat> man, I'm not feeling good. This, uh, this old jacket, I need a new jacket. But anyway, I just want you to know that we got, right? Like, did he come like a salesman? Did he come with flattery? Did he come with excellent kind of ways of, of fabricating things and, and of winning their affections? That no. He came with word and deed, the word of the gospel of God, explaining who they were and who God was and the only means of finding salvation and righteousness in Jesus Christ. And then he lived it out in such a way, it's like, listen, I don't want to be a burden to you. I, I don't want anything to hinder you believing that this is the right message and truth. Right? And he says, like a nursing mother, we existed and loved and cared for your souls. It's wonderful. It is about his word and deed. That's the method. So you have the boast. It's all about God in Christ. You have the aim. It's about Gentile obedience to the gospel. It's the method. It's about word and deed, right? And then it's the power in verse 19, right? By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. The power for everything that he was trying to accomplish for the sake of the gospel was ultimately from the Spirit of God Himself. When he says the power of signs and wonders, signs and wonders becomes in the New Testament kind of a catchphrase, right? It's meant to speak of the miraculous and supernatural occurrences um, that would take place and would help authenticate the message of the gospel. Right, People come into town and they say, hey, listen, the Messiah is here. He died for our sins, and he's raised again, and uh, he wants you to believe in him. And they, people are like, uh, eh, you know, I don't know. I don't know about that, All right? It's like, okay, bring out the sick. The lame can walk. The blind can see. The deaf can hear. Have you, do you guys remember anywhere in the Old Testament, right? This is a Jewish person like Paul speaking in the synagogue. Right? Do you guys remember anywhere in the Old Testament where prophecies like that that there will be a time when those things will happen? Yeah, a place like the book of Isaiah. Where the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. These are signs that, that the Messiah and the, message, the messenger of the Messiah is here. And so these, there were powers. There were miraculous things. Power of signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. Again, Paul making sure that the power is still God and not him. Right? And he's saying, we did miraculous things in order to authenticate the message that this is real. In 2 Corinthians 12, just that we understand this correctly, because I think our charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ would say, yeah, so, so Nam, why don't you believe that the signs and wonders in some ways are for all kinds of Christians everywhere? And part of the reason is because like in 2 Corinthians 12, um verse 12, Paul is arguing that he is a genuine apostle and at least on par with all the super apostles, right? These other kind of apostles that they're saying are great apostles. And one of the things that he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 is he says about himself that the signs of of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So see, if Paul is saying... The authenticating signs were these miraculous healings and other miraculous things that took place through me because I'm an apostle. If that's what confirmed me as an apostle, dude, that can't be for everybody. Right? If all of us had the capacity to do that, or if the vast majority or, or, or any number of people could do that, then they would, Paul was making no sense argument, right? Hey, man, if the gospel of Jesus Christ could save me by grace, then I'm an apostle. And we'd all laugh and go, dude, every Christian is saved by that. By that. Why, why would that prove that you're an apostle, all right? But that you could do signs and wonders and demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit. That was a legitimate expression of the authentication of the message. So you have then, right, you have all of these. You have the boast, God's work in Christ, the aim, Gentile obedience to the gospel, the method by proclamation and by living it out. And then you have the power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the other thing about the power of the Holy Spirit is with all the things that the book of Acts reports about what was happening in the beginning of the church. Again, you right, the blind healed so they could he- see, the deaf healed so they could hear, the lame could walk, all kinds of th- people raised from the dead, all kinds of wonders taking place. But the greatest miraculous work of supernatural um, power is still the transformation of a sinner, Right, To repent from their sins and believe on Jesus Christ unto life, that there there is no life-giving, transforming supernatural work like the transformation of a rebel and a sinner to become a beloved child and a saint, to take him, her, who left to themselves would only dig deeper, right. The depths of their sinfulness and increase the weight and the deserving of eternal hell. And then to grant to them not just salvation, but a desire to honor the one true God and to live the life that God has desired them to live. All by faith in Christ alone. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have the power, then finally you have the extent mentioned in the last part of verse 19. Verse nineteen says, "By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Erylm, um, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ." Paul is literally saying that the extent of his ministry has been that he has fulfilled everything. He has gone as far as he is capable of going. It is a little odd, though, because if you read the Book of Acts and you follow Paul's journey. Um, his missionary endeavors began in Antioch, right? Uh, not necessarily in Jerusalem. Now it's true according to G- G- Galatians 2.9 that th- his missionary journey, his, missions, um, his mission as a whole was affirmed by Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church <clears throat> according to Galatians 2.9, and maybe Paul means that. But secondly, what is odd is that he mentions Illyricum, right? Which is a place that's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul's not mentioned or connected with the Lyricum. So w- w- why is he saying that he has gone there? And to be honest, I don't know. He might be saying that, you know, that Jerusalem as the epicenter, and it really came, maybe he went there during his missionary trip to uh, Macedonia, but that might be the furthest point Right? That he has gone from Jerusalem and he's trying to say over this 1400 mile stretch, I have stopped off at every point. Because the key is that he says in the last part, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He means that he has completed a task that has been given to him. It's a term that means that he has fulfilled, right, what has been his duty from the start. Um, As one commentator remarks, it's the kind of thing an ambassador would claim in completing the visits on route to the ultimate goal. That as he's going from one place to the other, and that's probably why he means Jerusalem, because that's where the faith started, right? And to the Gentile world, to Illyricum, the furthest point that he knows, that along that route, he stopped every place that God would have him to stop as the messenger and ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way it was for all the great missionaries, Right? all the great missionaries that followed in the footsteps of Paul. Um, they left everything behind so they might pursue the things of Christ. Raymond Lowell was a missionary to the Muslims and had this famous phrase, I have one passion, it is he, it is he. Charles Wesley had a song, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Alexander White in one of his long Saturday walks with Marcus Dodds, said, whatever we started off with in our conversations, talking about these talks, we soon made across country somehow to Jesus of Nazareth. We begin here, and we always end up with Christ. Martin Luther said, we preach always him. This may seem a limited and monotonous subject, likely to be soon exhausted, but we are never at the end of it so this is the missionary appetite right that he needs to preach christ and to fulfill his ministry and to take it anywhere and everywhere it goes to the exaltation of christ his savior and his lord that's the heart of christ's exalting gospel ministry finally right and this one doesn't have any sub points it just has a singular point so don't panic if you think we have so much to go Two verses that just kind of express Paul's pioneering gospel ambition. Verse 20 and 21. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Verse 21 is just a quote from Isaiah 52, just to sprinkle in like like Paul's understanding, him, him trying to say it's kind of like what the promise to the Gentile world was in Isaiah 52, 15, that those who've never been told about him, that they will see, right? That those who have never heard about him will understand that individuals who are truly unreached might be reached to know and to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, that's my ambition, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, but to an unreached people group. Let me say this. Paul is not suggesting, nor is he proclaiming in any way, that it is wrong for us to build on another man's foundation. In fact, Paul himself makes it clear that that's what the church does constantly, right? Someone shared the gospel with you at some point, and maybe that's how you came to faith. And maybe it wasn't at this church. But now that you're at this church, I don't go, hey, listen, I'm trying not to build on another man's foundation, so go find that person that first shared the gospel with you, and then even if they passed away, then just kind of meditate on Scripture and kind of, kind of do your own thing. That's not the principle. He's not laying down a principle. He's talking about his ambition, his personal ambition. He's saying, man, this is what I choose as my ambition, my heart, my soul, my passion. I want to preach the gospel to people who will not otherwise hear it. There's something incredible about that. I love that. He is not saying that, that no one should build on someone else's gospel foundation. No. He, in fact, in 1 Corinthians... A church that is fighting about, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of, you know, I'm of Jesus, right? Like, you have all these guys breaking up into factions, and in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says this, listen, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who's watered are one, meaning that they work together, and they're the same and each will receive his wages according to his labor for we are God's fellow workers we work together you are God's field God's building so even there Paul is saying he yes he indeed he planted and then Apollos built on his foundation and he watered but it was God that always gave the growth so Paul is not saying or denigrating the idea that you are building on another man's foundation as far as the gospel ministry is concerned. He is saying quite something different. He's saying his personal conviction and heart is to be a pioneer missionary, to go where no man has gone before. We said that before, all right? It means that individually he had a conviction to reach the truly unreached, the never-been-told-about-him people, the never-have-heard-about-the-gospel people. That, that's who you wants to reach. So if you've ever thought to yourself, man, if the only way of salvation is believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God, very God, took on full humanity, lived a perfect life, and died on a cross to pay for the penalty of my sins to have faith in that person, and to trust in his sacrifice, to give my life to his lordship, that individual. Man, what happens to these tribes hidden in the vast mountain ranges of Tibet who have never heard the name Jesus Christ? Or if you've thought to yourself, what about those poor souls in sub-Saharan Sub-Saharan Africa who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happens to these unreached people groups who have never been told, who have never heard? Can I add some statistics to some of these? How about the sheikh of the Bangladesh? There's 135.2 million of them. Zero percent of them claim to be Christians. Zero percent. That's less than 50. That's that's nothing, right? Or how about the Sheikh of India? They gather mostly near the Pakistan border. 85.4 million of them. We're talking in the millions, right? Zero percent profess to be Christians. The Brahmin of India, these are the mostly Hindu caste, 58.8 million of them zero Christians none claim the name of Jesus Christ how about the Turks in Turkey 59.3 million of them there's a ray of hope 0.01% claim to be Christian 0.01 of 59 million people how about the people of Japan it's like what all of a sudden we got to the industrialized nation here million people, 1.2% of them claim to be Christian. That's good. But only 0.3% of them are evangelical Christians because they throw into that Christian label every cult, anything that's associated with the name Jesus Christ, Catholic Church, right? Mormons, JWs, they they all get thrown in that pot. 0.3% of 121 million people are evangelicals like us. Listen, we can go through again and again how many, how many individuals who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Paul having this broad, pioneering spirit to say, listen, it is a good and excellent thing that the church builds up, right? Those who have received the, the gospel of grace, those that receive salvation in Jesus Christ, and they're training them and encouraging them and causing them to become full of goodness, right? Filled with the knowledge and able to instruct others. I mean, that, that's exactly what they, he wants them to do, as in, as in verse 14. But Paul's whole point is, man, but I really, really want to reach the unreached. And if there's something in you that kind of, that kind of that, that resonates with that same idea, then build on that. And perhaps it's, it's nothing more than, than supporting missionaries that are in these areas where the gospel has not even penetrated a heart, Right? Or perhaps it's it's you thinking about reshaping your life to go yourself or to participate in some way or to at least begin to pray regularly. This is the missionary heart of Paul. Yes, he has a reverent gospel service. He just cares about people and he's encouraging them. He's boldly reminding them and he's seeing this reverent kind of lifting up of souls to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's all about Christ. That's his boast, it's his aim. It drives his method, it's his power, and he'll go anywhere and everywhere for the gospel. And ultimately, it is expressed in the fact that he has a pioneering gospel ambition. This is what drives his heart, that there are some who do not know the name of Jesus Christ. And every sinner he has compassion for. Why? Because he was that sinner. Because you were that sinner. And someone had compassion to bring you the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a missionary heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, what the scriptures reveal about the great apostle, and he is great, not because of any human accomplishment, but because of how well you used him. Oh, Lord, may we give ourselves to the same purposes, to your glory, and to your gospel ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: few brief reminders before we end our time this morning Uh, we will have lunch today it's been donated by an anonymous person so be sure to enjoy it and uh, praise god for that so it'll be right out here after our second hour or our equipping time Uh, and a schedule change announcement that's not going to happen this week but next week Um, we will be shifting by 15 minutes the time for our equip hour so our refreshment hour will change from 45 minutes to 30 minutes And we're going to start all our equip time at 11 a.m. So it'll go 11 a.m. to 12. And then when we do have lunch, it'll begin right around 12. So we'll send an email out that this is is a request from VKCPC so we can adjust to some of their schedule changes. Um, So keep in mind uh, that for next time. So uh, everyone, please rise for the end of this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you guys. You are dismissed.